Hey, TCAT fans, you've heard me talk about it before, but I love Audible. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app, and they make it so easy to discover something new, something you'll love. Right now, I'm listening to The Teacher, which is an amazing audiobook. It's a thriller, and it's got me on the edge of my seat. With Audible, you can also discover thousands of podcasts from your popular favorites to exclusive new series. And I love the fact that, you know, I can take my titles with me wherever I go and listen to them wherever I want. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And members get full access to a growing selection of included audiobooks, Audible originals, and podcasts. You can download or stream their included titles all you want. And as a lover of true crime, you're going to find a lot of mystery, thrillers, true crime audiobooks that you will absolutely love. New members can try Audible free for 30 days visit audible.com slash TCAT or text TCAT to 500-500. That's audible.com slash TCAT or text TCATT to 500-500. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 289 of the True Crime All the Time podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson, and with me, as always, is my partner in true crime, Mike Gibson. Gibby, how are you? Man, I'm doing really good. You didn't ask me how I was doing. And how are you doing? <laughs> how you doing? I don't, don't ask me it that way. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm doing great. Good. Hey, listen, we got so much out this weekend. We have a, a brand new Patreon episode that just dropped last night on Kathleen Dorsett. And this is really a story, Gibbs, of what is a family willing to do for you? Yeah. And in the case of Kathleen Dorsett, they were willing to help murder her ex-husband. Yeah. Maybe you need to draw some lines in that sand. Right. There was no lines drawn in this one at all. And then on True Crime All the Time Unsolved, we're talking about the unsolved murders of the DuPont de Ligonnais family. So we're headed to France. 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 Yeah. Yeah, it's 2011. You know, we're going to look at the strange circumstances around the murder of this family. And we'll dive into all the particulars. Yeah. So make sure you check that out. Let's go ahead and give our Patreon shout outs. We had Elizabeth Gibson. Hey, Elizabeth. Janelle Biddenstadt. Well, thank you, Janelle. Keisha Clevenger. What's up, Keisha? Ray 27. Hey, Ray. Olga Grinchenko. Well, thank you, Olga. Betty Steele jumped out at our highest level. Hey, Betty. Jericho M. Ross Jr. Well, thanks, M. Ross Jr. Jenny Heather. Hey, Heather. Tara Spender. Well, thank you, Tara. Black Panther. You know I like that Black Panther. I do, too. Love that movie. Alexis Barrett. Hey, Barrett. T.A. Webb. What's going on, Webb? Gabrielle LeBlanc. Well, thank you, Gabrielle. Walker Bikowitz. Walker, like Texas Walker Ranger. <laughs> or Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah. Tammy McLaughlin. Hey, Tammy. Bam. Well, thank you, B-A-M. <laughs> Kylie Hayes. Hey, Kylie. Kristen McWhorter. Hey, Kristen. And last but not least, Cindy Bates, who oh. jumped out at our highest level. That's awesome. Thanks, Cindy. And then if we go back into the vault. Okay. This week, we selected Lisa Wood Gray. Well, thanks, Lisa. Yeah, we appreciate the new support, the continued support. We had great PayPal donations from Helen Falk. Hey, Helen. And Kelly Klontz. Well, thank you, Kelly. So thanks to everyone who helped support the show. All right, buddy. Are you ready to get into this episode of True Crime All the Time? I'm ready. We are headed to Japan to talk about an evil monster named Tsutomu Miyazaki. So we're international, Gibbs, on, on both episodes, TCAT and TCAT Unsolved. But this was a young man born of incest and despised by most who knew him, including himself. I don't think he liked himself. He really only had one person who showed him any sort of empathy or love. And when that person died, the switch kind of flipped 
and he became one of the most heinous serial killers in Japanese history, killing under the alter ego of Ratman, which was an evil entity that, that he claimed was his alter ego, who issued him orders that he had to obey. He killed four innocent children as he acted out you know, depraved fantasies of bloodlust, cannibalism, and even necrophilia. So we know what we're in for in this episode. It's going to be a rough one. It is going to be rough. He was actually in the process of luring a fifth victim when he was caught. His behavior at trial was disturbing, and that disturbing behavior continued all the way up until his death. So there's no doubt we're about ready to enter a dark and disturbing world the world of the rat man, kind of a a nightmarish world created by an unloved, much abused child. You know, Miyazaki would never know the unconditional love of family. He never developed kind of those much needed bonds of good friends, kind of something that I think a lot of us take for granted. Sure. Instead, he retreated into a dark fantasy world that kind of grew and grew until he began to act out his dark fantasies in real life on innocent children who were unable to fight back. So this is a guy who was given a lot of names by the Japanese press, the otaku murderer, Dracula, the little girl murderer, and the rat man are just a few of the names given to Satomu Miyazaki by the press following the gruesome murders of four innocent children in Japan and really what was about a 10-month period of time between 1988 and 1989. And I think we'll be exploring some of the themes that you and I talk about quite a bit. You know, what causes a person to act in ways that violate even the most basic social norms? This is a question that you and I have asked many times and, and we'll do so again in this episode. Are killers like Miyazaki, born with some sort of frog demon already in place, or does their environment twist and pervert an otherwise healthy individual? It's been studied extensively, and I think we definitely know more about killers today than we did you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, but I'm not sure, Gibbs, that anyone has been able to answer this question. Satomu Miyazaki was born in Tokyo in 1962. I already said he was born, you know, of incest. His mother was also his sister who was molested repeatedly by his father. Well, that's really disturbing. Yeah, I think it's a wow moment. It is a wow. I mean, I I know that I sat back in my chair a little bit, you know, when I, when I've seen that in the research. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things in, in the research of cases that kind of jump out at you. This is one that, that definitely jumped out at both of us. He was born prematurely with several health conditions, really the most prominent being with his wrists and hands. Miyazaki was missing the radial joints of his wrists. You know, that's the, the one that basically connects the wrist to the hands. And without those his wrists were fused to his hands and kind of one continuous piece. So just imagine not being able to bend your hands at the wrist. Be very awkward. And it would make it tough to do certain things. Sure. On top of that, his hands would become the source of unrelenting teasing by his school age peers. We've seen that time and time again, Gibbs, not really with something like this because this is, most of the time we see it with something like somebody's name or, you know, something relatively small. It's been reported that he was bullied both at school, but also at home by his sisters who were reportedly disgusted by his misshapen limbs. It was also said that his sisters laid out rat traps in his room at night so that when he got up in the morning, he would step on them. So they thought this would be funny because why? It would leave his feet all bloody from the traps? I don't know. I don't know. We're not painting a real good picture here, right, Uh, of home life. And then there was the treatment that he received by his parents, which I think at the very best, you'd have to call it ambivalent, probably leaning more towards criminal. And maybe it was because, you know, he was born out of this incestuous 
molestation that, you know, the home was not a place where, you know, there was nurturing, there was love. And that's something that kids need, you know, especially, you know, during those formative years, kids need that. And when it's not there, you know, what does it do psychologically, socially? And the other people became kind of a source of misery and cruelty to this guy. So I think he got to the point where he just didn't want to be around other people. Well, why would he, right? If he's being bullied at school, if he's being bullied and abused at home, why would you want to be around anybody? No, you'd probably want to try to slink off and just do your own thing. And I think that's what he did. Now, it was said that he was intelligent. And initially, he excelled in his academic studies at school He dreamed of becoming an English teacher, but as he descended into kind of this depression and some other untreated personality disorders that we'll talk about, his grades suffered. And because of that, he was forced to abandon, you know, his plans of college and his plan of becoming an English teacher. So instead he attended a technical college to study video production and photography, which was a passion for him. He eventually went to work for his father who ran a successful newspaper business. I've seen some reports that he was a a printing assistant, but other reports said that, you know, this was a, a big business. Like, uh, they were well known. Oh, big, big time paper in that area, in that area. They, you know, they were pretty well known. Now I'm assuming that most people didn't know much about the father. I would think probably not behind closed doors. Now as a teenager, you know, we all think back when we were teenagers, right? You started having boyfriends, girlfriends. Yeah. You're developing connections with your peers. Well, he wasn't doing any of that. He basically turned to the world of fantasy. He was drawn to violent horror films, child pornography, anime, and manga which these things basically became everything to him. Pretty much just consumed his day. Yeah. I I think this is what he used to get by and what fueled his fantasy world. So there's this term in Japan, otaku. It's a pejorative term that basically refers to individuals with consuming interest. I think a lot of times it's used for people who, you know, are so concentrated on anime and manga. And I knew what anime was, you know, it's huge in Japan. It's pretty big over here. Now, a lot of people are really into it. I really wasn't familiar with manga. I had to look that up. It's basically just comics, graphic novels. So it's the non animated form. Oh, okay. But what I took from, you know, some of the research was that this term otaku, it was really kind of looking down at certain types of people who are like all consumed by some of this stuff. You know, they're viewed as outcasts, loners. And I think, you know, you would have to say that this guy kind of fit into that category. Probably because it leaves some form of reality behind. And I think for him, he had a reason to want to leave reality behind. I don't think reality for him was a very good thing. Now, Gibbs, you know, we've seen in a lot of cases of serial killers that many of them had it pretty rough right at home growing up to say that some of their families were not nurturing. That would definitely be an understatement. But as we often point out, many people have bad childhoods. They don't grow up to become serial killers or even criminals. One thing that I see in the research quite often is that with many of these serial killers, there tends to be an event that kind of pushes them over the edge. In Miyazaki's case, that event seems to be the death of his grandfather in 1988. This is the very same year that he committed his first murder. And by all accounts, his grandfather was really the only person in his life with whom he had any type of kind of loving relationship. And it's believed by many that the death of his grandfather precipitated his first attack. It was also reported that he was so distraught that he ingested a quantity of his grandfather's cremated remains. 
in an attempt to incorporate the physical presence of his deceased grandfather and, and kind of keep him close to him. Oh, that's bizarre. That's bizarre. I can see people doing that, though. What, what I mean, I can, I can see how they would justify doing it, it, you know, if they weren't in the right state of mind. Well, I think there are a lot of people that we talk about who are able to justify things that maybe you and I couldn't justify or, or the majority of people listening couldn't justify. Now, when a lot of people lose somebody they love like a grandfather, okay, they might wear their watch or they might take their, their pocket knife and carry that with them as kind of a, a way to keep them close. I don't think what many people would do is eat some of their cremated remains. Yeah. I don't think that's going to be something that enters most people's minds, but that's exactly what he did. So is it a problem that part of my request, if something ever happens to me, that I become part of your um, steak seasoning? Yeah, it's, it's going to be an issue. Okay. There's, there's no doubt about it. All right. Well, revisit that. Now, many of these events that seem to push murderers over the edge from fantasy into reality, they're really the same types of things that a lot of us deal with every day. Right, the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, money trouble, things like that. And by and large, most people get through these issues with a combination of learned coping skills, the support of their friends and family, people they can turn to during difficult times. I think all of us have been in that spot. I know I have. Yeah. I've lost a job. I've talked about it openly on this show. But I had family. I had friends who I could lean on for support. But what happens, Gibbs, number one, when you don't have the coping skills, because you never learned them, and you have no friends, really no family to rely on. I think some of these eventual serial killers lack the ability to deal with these types of stressful events, so they turn inward. They focus on their own problems to the exclusion of everything else, but they also start to focus on fantasies as maybe the solution to some of their problems. And that's concerning, right? It's concerning. I mean, at the very least, I think they turn to fantasy as a form of escape. And maybe you could call that a quasi solution to a problem. But I think a lot of experts have come out and said, you know, these fantasies are self-soothing to these types of individuals and some of these people are, are very accustomed to kind of retreating into their, their fantasy world to give them comfort. Yeah, but unhealthy comfort. I, I would say so. Mm. I, I don't think experts think it's, a, it's the healthiest way right. to deal with your, your issues because you're not really dealing with them. Right. You're escaping them. Now, could it work? Sure. Yeah. But, I mean, it's an outlet for people. Sure. I, I think that where the issue comes in and what we'll see in this case is, you know, what type of fantasy are you delving into or are you right. diving into? If it's a dark fantasy, a twisted, a perverted fantasy, well, then you're most likely going to have an issue. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of serial killers kind of fall into. There's no doubt that's where Miyazaki fell into. For sure. Because we're going to see his fantasy world is dark. But there's no doubt, I think, over the years that he had developed a pretty rich fantasy life. And then when his grandfather died, that's really when everything seemed to turn bad. Beginning in June 1988, his behavior began to spiral, culminating in four murders between August 1988 and June 1989. At one point, he was discovered filming his sisters while they were bathing. He was confronted and he got violent over that. He also reacted aggressively when it was discovered that he had been consuming his grandfather's cremated remains. So your kids are going to do stuff that you don't like. Sure. Right. Things you might have to call them out on. I think videotaping your sisters naked while they're taking a bath. Not okay. Not okay. We're going to have to have a talk about you eating your grandfather's remains. I just think we're going to, it's something that we're going to have to discuss. Can't keep that up. But you can't because eventually you're going to run out of grand, grand. That's true. <laughs> the other thing that was said about Maizaki was that he was big time into kind of deviant 
pornography. I mean, we're talking child pornography, things like that. He also began trolling for child victims who he could dominate and easily control. So we know bad things are about to happen. And I think to tell the story properly, we kind of almost have to work backwards and start in February of 1989. That's when the parents of little Marie Kono received a package in the mail. Gibbs, when they opened it, they discovered bones, some ash of their four-year-old daughter who had been missing for about six months. They had assumed that she had wandered into the nearby forest, maybe drowned in the river, but there was no doubt about what they received because also in the box was a Polaroid picture of Marie, a bag containing 10 of her baby teeth, and a note that read, there are devils about. So there's a package that would haunt you for a long time. Ever. Yeah. You're not, you're not getting over that. But it's also a pattern that we're going to see with Miyazaki. Not only does he abduct and murder children, but he also taunts the parents of these children. Yeah. Sends them things, notes. He calls them. And he does the same to police. And we'll talk about it as we go through. So obviously they took this box to the authorities. And it was really at this point, from my understanding, that police had to admit that they had a serial predator on the loose. Because by this time, they had received some letters from the perpetrator taunting them. Marie was the third known child to be abducted since August 1988. So authorities held a press conference and they issued warnings to parents and children to be on the lookout because there was a dangerous predator on the loose. What wasn't known at the time is that little Marie was the rat man's first victim, but she wouldn't be his last. So I don't know how much Gibbs, you and I have talked about paraphilias on TCAT. You know, I think This is what used to be called fetishes before that perversions, you know, a paraphilia is the experience of intense and sometimes dangerous sexual arousal in response to atypical items. So like shoes, people get aroused by shoes. Yeah. So they call that a paraphilia or it can be situations like voyeurism or, you know, dirty talk on the telephone. I've seen that listed as well. Or it can be individuals, such as small children. So the word is Greek, derived from para, meaning other, and philia, meaning love. So it describes an attachment or fixation that is either forbidden by conventional society or prohibited by law, often both. So like using knives and... Well, I I think if you were a person who was sexually aroused by a knife, I'm assuming that would be considered a paraphilia. Are you trying to tell us something? No. Okay. No. Because you you brought up a knife and you are well known for, you know, having a lot of knives, having an interest in knives. Vacuum cleaner, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know anything about that. That came off wrong. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, we're living in some stressful times. And I feel like we're being asked to do more and more. Well, that can be a little overwhelming. And for many, it can lead to burnout. And it's not just work. It can come from all the different hats that we wear. BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. You know, talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. I've used BetterHelp. It's a great service. They make it incredibly easy to get linked up with a therapist who you can really connect to. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash TCAT. That's BetterHelp.com slash TCAT, T-C-A-T-T. 
Oh, Gibby, you know I love that sound. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business. So startups, upstarts, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. When we switched to using Shopify three or four years ago, it was a game changer in trying to sell our podcast merch. Shopify simplified everything and made it incredibly easy, and we still use them today. It allows us to reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Shopify is more than a store. It grows with you. Go to shopify.com slash TCAT, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash TCAT right now. Shopify.com slash TCAT. As he explains in his book, Murder City, professor and ex-detective Michael Arnfield describes the current theory on how paraphilias develop. Most paraphilias are thought to develop in early childhood, usually as part of emotionally or sexually traumatic experiences. By the time a child reaches puberty, when individuals experiment with different scenarios or sexual partners and objects, these paraphilias have become hardwired into their personality and sexuality. Most, though, never escalate into the realm of criminality. So, I mean, I think that's a big distinction. I think so too. I mean, there are a lot of people and you and I have broached this subject before who are into things that others might deem as strange or maybe things that go against conventional norms. Right. Sexually. Yes. But they're not hurting anybody. No. So what's the harm? Yeah. As long as they're not hurting anybody. I mean, that's the key, right? Yeah. If you want to wear a big diaper. Do what, do what you do what you got to do yeah. if you're with somebody else as long as it's consensual they're into it too hey i got new issues my issue is when people are into something and they force somebody else else to do something now we're gonna have a big issue in this case because we're talking about underage children exactly. small children now we do talk about psychopaths a lot You can have a psychopath who also happens to be a paraphiliac, basically, you know, someone who constantly places his own sexual gratification and need for power ahead of the feelings of others. That person will often progress to experimenting with what are termed attack paraphilias, which are basically indulgences and fantasy enactment that require violence against others or non-consenting partners. Okay, none of that is going to be good. No. Or okay. No, that's alarming. And to me, I think it's the need to act on these impulses. A lot of the stuff I read talked about how it's not well thought out. Like these decisions that people make, it's more of a compulsion that dates back to the person's childhood when that person's psychosexual development was first imprinted. Some experts believe the formation of paraphilias have both an environmental and biological explanation. Necrophilia, for example, has been affiliated with diminished intelligence and compromised brain development in a number of case studies, along with parental neglect and sexual prohibition in the home during the child's developmental years. Necrophilia is also disproportionately overrepresented in individuals who have a paralyzing fear of rejection or abandonment. And it's been theorized that these factors can be traced directly to Miyazaki's childhood and resulting criminal psychology. So I found that pretty interesting. It kind of lets us know where his mind is. Yeah, I think from maybe a a scientific standpoint or what people believe kind of helps us gain some insight into not only what he's thinking, but maybe why. Yes. And that's kind of the thing we're always striving for. But there's no doubt, Gibbs, that once he committed his first murder and had, you know, indulged in some of his depraved sexual fantasies, he wanted more. Just a month later, 
after he murdered Marie Kono, he abducted seven-year-old Masami Yoshizawa off the street as she walked to school, then drove her to the same forest preserve where he had taken his last victim. He strangled Masami and was having sex with her corpse when it was said, Gibbs, she regained consciousness and came back to life. He was so startled, this guy, that he ran away. I think he thought she was dead. Yeah. She obviously was not, but he basically left her there to die from her extensive injury. He didn't know what to think. I know what I think. He's a sick son of a bitch. Oh, no doubt about that. On December 12th, 1988, Miyazaki was again out cruising for a child to abduct when he happened upon Erica Namba, who had just been to the store to buy candy. He forced her into his car and drove again to the same forest. He'd brought his previous two victims. He ordered her to take off her clothes. And when she refused, he strangled her to death. But it did come out that little Erica fought hard for her life and she left some very deep scratches on his face. She almost bit off his ear. She's tough. But once she was dead, Miyazaki engaged in necrophilic acts with her corpse. He then wrapped her in a white sheet and left her in the nature preserve. When he got back to his car, two men who had observed him asked him what he had been doing. And why he had these, you know, very deep scratches on his face. He made up an excuse saying that his car had gotten stuck and he had fallen down trying to push it free. Police discovered Erica Namba's body a week later, still wrapped in the white sheet. But now they had witnesses because these two men went to the local authorities with the description of this man that they had seen all scratched up in the woods the day Erica went missing. Which is great, right? Now we had the police are trying to locate this serial killer. But Miyazaki would claim one final victim before he was captured. Five-year-old Ayoko Nomoto was playing alone near the tennis courts where Miyazaki often went to photograph girls in their short tennis skirts. So he was a, it was a voyeur. He, he was into all kinds of stuff, but it all related to children, his pornography, everything for him and his fantasies revolved around young children. He asked the young girl if he could take her photo and he got her to his car by promising her candy, the the old candy trick. And she's only five years old. Yeah. But what he later said was that she laughed at his hands. And when she did that, He beat her unconscious. He then drove her to his home where he cut off her arms, legs, and her head. He ate parts of her hands and had sex with her corpse. Wow. It's tough, tough to stomach. I mean, the details are are what they are, but they are very, very tough. Her, Her last words were really hard to hear. I want my mother. Yeah. You almost don't know what to say after that. I don't think there is something, man. Because you can, you can picture a little girl so frightened that all she wants in the whole world is her mommy. Yeah. The Los Angeles Times reported that the little girl's torso was found in a suburban Tokyo cemetery several days after she was reported missing. But he's escalating here, Gibbs, right? I mean, each one of these murders and abductions is brutal, but now we're into, you know, dismemberment and you know he is he experimenting i don't know what he did with nomoto is he filmed the entire thing and police would later get their hands on this recording and it would be used later at his trial i mean sick and disturbing i'm glad the police had it for the trial but i can't imagine anybody sitting there having to review that no, and it's something that we all we don't always take into account. You know, being on a jury is tough. We talked about that. But being really forced to view grisly images and videos, you know, that sometimes is part of a trial. And, and a jury has to sit there and, and view that evidence. It can't be easy. But you have the abduction and murder of another little girl. 
And really what it did was it sent the city of Tokyo into a panic, right? Parents were worried about their children, worried, was it going to be their child that would be the, the next one to disappear? You know, so this is a universal thing because we talk about this in cases from every part of the world. When you have some type of serial predator on the loose, especially when it involves small children, parents are going to take notice. And I think that's where, you know, there a lot of parents are going to lock it down. No, you can't go to the corner store. You can't even play in, in the front yard or the backyard. You're going to be attached to my hip because I don't want to let you out of my sight. I can't take that chance. Ayoko Nomoto would be Miyazaki's last victim because as we see with a lot of serial killers, He began taking bigger and bigger risks, which ultimately led to his capture. He was in a park in Western Tokyo where he saw two sisters playing outside. He tried to lure them both to join him in his car, but the older one wasn't having it. She ran home, but the younger child was taken into his car and driven a short distance within still within the park. But I mentioned it. He was becoming more reckless. This was a public area. He was really taking a big chance of of being discovered because he molested this child essentially out in the open. He's in a park. He got undressed completely naked and then began taking pictures of this young girl. It was even reported that he inserted the lens of the camera into her genitals. This guy is really, really sick. Yeah, we've covered some sick ones, and this guy is is right up there with them. But it was at this point that the older sister returned to the park. She went and got her father, and Miyazaki was discovered in the act of molesting this child. And you can imagine what happened next. The same thing that any father would do. This guy beat the shit out of him. You want to see a father come unglued. You want to see rage personified. That's going to happen when a father discovers a grown man. He's 26, 27 years old, but a grown man molesting his young daughter. You're not going to be able to pull that guy off. Now, Miyazaki was able to run away to get away, but he was naked, ran into the woods. When he tried to go back to his car about an hour later, so he tried to wait it out. Didn't work. Police were there waiting for him. The father had obviously called police. He was taken into custody because of what he had just been doing. Sure. But he also matched the description of the suspect in the child disappearances that had been occurring in recent months. So now they have him. They have him. The next thing that they did was they conducted a search of his room. And Gibbs, they discovered close to 6,000 videotapes containing hardcore pornography, recorded acts of voyeurism, child abuse, and violently graphic anime. And it said hardcore pornography, but my assumption is a lot of that was probably child pornography. yeah. One tape held this disturbing series called the Guinea Pig Series, I don't know what it is, and I didn't even want to look it up yeah, because yeah. I was afraid of what I might see. But it depicts gore and guts set among bizarre comedy sketches. Uh, I'm not even sure what that is, but I know it's something that I didn't want to view. Authorities said they discovered over 500 videos with footage recording his sisters in the shower or bathing. 500 videos. How many hours yeah. is that? Another tape contained almost five minutes of footage featuring a child victim he had mutilated. Yeah, quite the collection. Well, and I think it was this collection, really, that provided a glimpse into his fantasies, which were, you know, some of the darkest, most deviant that you could have, fusing sexual gratification with murder, death, and and gore. The police interrogated Miyazaki for four weeks until he finally confessed. It was reported that he was completely unremorseful as he gave out details of the four murders he had committed. 
It was also said that he seemed almost happy and proud to recount every heinous detail of the murders. Now, he did help lead the police to Ayoko Nomoto's skull, but during his police interrogation, his behavior was said to have been very bizarre. He blamed the acts of cannibalism, vampirism, and necrophilia on his alter ego, Ratman. So he brought up Ratman. Now, it's been said that Miyazaki constructed this persona because it allowed him to disassociate himself, basically blame someone else yeah. for all of these horrible things that, that he did. Kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde scenario. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And even this can be traced back to the death of his grandfather, because what he later said was that he promised Ratman that if he conceded to his alter ego's violent desires, his grandfather would be returned to him. Which was his most important person in his life, his grandfather. I want to talk about a brand that my wife really loves, and that's Bonafide. Bonafide was created to give women an alternative to effectively relieve the symptoms that accompany hormonal fluctuations within their body because every woman deserves relief without compromise. They have some amazing products. Relizin provides powerful hormone-free relief to women experiencing menopausal hot flashes and night sweats. Sylvessa is a new product from Bonafide. It's the first comprehensive system designed to restore and protect hair and skin affected by estrogen decline. From the inside out, a daily capsule hair serum and skin serum combined for healthier looking hair and skin. And it's formulated with hyaluronic acid to visibly improve skin texture and reduce fine lines and wrinkles. This is a company that you need to check out. Give Bonafide a try today. No hormones and no prescription required. Real relief without compromise. I'm going to give listeners today a special offer when you subscribe to any product by going to hellobonafide.com slash TCAT and use our promo code TCAT. That's hello, B-O-N-A, FIDE.com slash TCAT and code TCAT to claim your special offer. For best prices and free shipping, go directly to the hellobonafide.com slash TCAT website. Check it out. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? As the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. I've been using Simply Safe for about four or five years now, and it's the award-winning home security that I recommend. I've turned a lot of friends, family members, and fans onto it as well. Both experts and customers love Simply Safe for its comprehensive protection. It was just named Best Home Security Systems of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. They have advanced technology to protect every room, window, and door of your home. They also have a slew of cameras to keep watch for suspicious activity 24-7. Protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/tcat. That's simplysafe.com/tcat. There's no safe like Simply Safe. At times in his confession, he spoke of Ratman as as kind of a separate entity who forced him to act on his commands, and at other times he said Ratman controlled him from inside. I'm getting a real David Berkowitz vibe here with the dog. Yeah. Like the dog is telling him to, to murder people. Maizaki said that the murders were all part of dreams and he denied that they even occurred in real life or that if they did, he had any control because it was all rat man. Now he did admit to drinking the blood of one of his victims and taunting both the police and the victim's families through his writing. So he's got all the details, but he's saying he was not in control. It was Ratman yeah. who was in total control. He had no choice but to follow his commands. Yeah, It's not our first time hearing this. No, I think uh, there's been a lot of serial offenders who have developed an alter ego. Something that they can, you know, blame their, their deviant acts on. Ted Bundy had his, he called it the entity. John Wayne Gacy had one. He named Jack Hanley. You know, it kind of seems to be a way that, that an individual can compartmentalize 
the good and bad aspects of their personality, in addition to allowing them to distance themselves from the offensive behavior. So, you know, if you're Gacy, you know, you're doing all this good stuff for the community. Right. You're, you're Pogo the Clown. So that's you. That's you, Gacy. Yeah. But the murdering of all these boys, that's not me. No. That's my alter ego. That's Jack. I, th- I think for me, the thing is, how do you figure out when these individuals are telling the truth or not? I mean, to be honest with you, Gibbs, I normally lean towards the fact that they're not telling the truth, that they're making some of this up. We know with Berkowitz, right? I think he admitted yes. that he made that part up. I don't know about Bundy and, and Gacy if they ever if they ever said that. I don't remember. But I look at the way that Maizaki was raised. Maybe he did have to find another personality to deal with certain things in his life. Well, I, I do believe that it does happen to people. Can some people be forced to compartmentalize like that? I think it does happen. But the problem that I think crops up in every episode or or at least most of them when you're dealing with stuff like this is when is it real? And when is it just someone who knows they're, they're caught and they're trying to either find a way out or they're trying to minimize their role in these horrible things that, that they've done. They know they did them, but it's easier for them to blame it on an alter ego but i can't say for sure that everyone's making it up right we do know that people develop split personalities could that be what someone might call an alter ego possibly could be but there's no doubt that the crimes of satomu Miyazaki had a significant impact on japanese culture the media kind of pushed this image that he represented the otaku culture as a whole and that basically he was a warning to anybody involved in this lifestyle they vilified anime they vilified manga and really that kind of culture overall they labeled him the otaku murderer so really what they did was they used a very broad brush to paint a large population of individuals who were into all this stuff as Basically the same as Miyazaki. It was estimated in 2014 Gibbs that 22% of the Japanese population identified with this otaku culture, which based on population records was about 27 million people. That's a lot of people. It is. And it's probably higher today. It probably is. I, I know it's very popular, but isn't this the same thing that happens in the United States? You know, go back to a case like the West Memphis Three. Yeah. You know, you've got these three guys, kids, that people believed were murderers. They dressed all in black. They listened to heavy metal music. So anytime somebody with a certain interest is thought to be or turns out to be a murderer, other people with that same interest kind of get tainted, right? Just by association. It's not right, but it definitely happens. And apparently it happens all over the world. So now we get into the trial and, you know, his trial started in 1990. What I thought was fascinating was that it spanned seven years. So I mean, a lot of that was due to mental health aspects and I'm not going to go into, you know, every piece of it. It was reported that his mothers and sisters visited him They brought him comic books, but his father, he basically disowned him. He didn't want to have anything to do with him. And he took his life in 1994 as the trial was still going on. Miyazaki definitely displayed bizarre behavior during the trial. He was observed talking to himself constantly about his alter ego, Ratman. Maybe he was talking to Ratman. I don't know. He told the jury that what he did were acts of benevolence and that he was actually doing his victims a favor by killing them. Wow. That's his statement, huh? That's what he believed. Now, I'm telling you right now, if you're the parent of a murdered child and you hear this guy say that in court, 
it's going to take every deputy you got to hold me back. Sure is. Some psychologists who examined him deemed him legally sane. Yet they said he suffered from schizophrenia, while other psychologists said that he had no recognizable mental disorder at all. One psychiatrist, Dr. Susuma Oda, told the court, Sotomu killed for enjoyment as thrill killings. Combined with his dissociative disorder, the murders he committed were considered characters in a comic book. That was his life. He was a pedophile first and a killer second. And it was through these killings that he was able to possess the children in their entirety and show his interest in them, which I can only assume is his twisted view of love and care. That's a very powerful statement. It really is. I mean, the first thing that jumped out at me was pedophile first, killer second. And that does make some sense to me. You know, I, I think the fantasy life turns into reality. We've seen that time and time again. You know, if he started with the child pornography and the voyeurism of his sisters and, and things like that, and then eventually got to the point where he decided he was going to kill. What really jumps out at me is this person saying that, you know, him thinking that he was showing interest in these children was his view of love and care. My assumption is that the psychiatrist is saying he had no idea what love and care really was because he never experienced any of it. As a child growing up, as far as I know, he had you know no romantic connections whatsoever throughout his life, but to want to be able to possess them. And if he really did think he was doing a good thing, which he said, that's messed up. At the conclusion of his trial in 1997, Miyazaki was convicted of all four murders. He was sentenced to death. The chief justice at his trial would later explain the reasoning behind his death sentence, saying the atrocious murder of four girls to satisfy his sexual desires leaves no room for leniency. I don't know if I've ever agreed with the statement more. I agree. I don't think I could agree with the statement any more than I agree right. with this one. Perfectly said. Now, if you're anti-death penalty, I get it. You might not agree. But if the death penalty is available, who would deserve it more than someone like this who callously murdered four young girls, the sexual aspect, the mutilation, the, the drinking of blood. I mean, there's just so much involved. And then when he was later asked if he would apologize to the family of the children he murdered, he said that he had done a good job. Those were his words. I did a good job. Okay. He showed no remorse for sending the postcards, the ashes, the bones, making the phone calls, taunting the families, the victims. So here again, you know, I have to ask the question, real or not real? I don't know that there's any way for me to definitively answer the question. I always wonder, Gibbs, as we go through some of these cases, what's real and what's for show? I mean, he had a really messed up childhood. He did. And there's no way around that. He absolutely did. Did it twist him? That's a big question, right? Nature versus nurture. Was he born with this frog demon inside him? And no matter what his childhood was like, would he have gone on to do these really bad things? Or if he had a loving, nurturing family, would he have grown up respecting people, the law, and not have had any of these desires and or acted upon them? I don't know the answer. And I don't know the answer of whether he truly believed that he had done a good job. It seems so strange to, to say, or whether that's bravado. We know some of these serial killers, they say things they don't actually mean because they want to, they want to go out big and bad. Sensationalize. Sure. Because what do they have to lose? In some cases, I think that, you know, they're going to put you to death. I think some of them 
come to the conclusion that I'm going to say whatever I want. I'm going to shock people. Well, his crimes alone were shocking. Oh, they're yeah, absolutely shocking. Some of the, some of the worst that we've covered. Miyazaki's death warrant was signed, and he was executed by hanging on the same day, June seventeenth, two thousand eight, at the age of forty five. His last words as he was taken to the gallows were, I'm going to get you, Batman, I swear, if it's the last thing I do. And people were dumbfounded by this. They, they just couldn't make any sense of it. I think some of the Japanese papers had a field day with his last words. I think it also illustrates the difference between Japan and the U.S. when sure. it comes to putting people to death. So the very same day that his death warrant was signed, he was hanged. The Associated Press reported that Miyazaki was executed along with two other men, Sinji Mutsuda and Yashio Yamasaki. The AP also wrote that capital punishment faces little opposition in Japan and that convicts languish on death row for decades before they are suddenly hanged with no advance notice. So some similarities and some differences with us here in the U.S. Sure. People can spend a very long time on death row before they're put to death, if, if they're even put to death at all. What I think is very different is that over there, it, and I'm sure this article was, was some years ago, but I think it was like 2008 that this article, so things might have changed, but they were basically just plucking people off of death row and saying, today you're going to die. Today's your day. There's no, okay, we're setting your date and it's three months, six months down the road. No, today's the day and we're signing it and you're being hanged. Well, maybe it keeps that anxiety from building up into that uh, criminal's uh, mind. Well, yeah. How can you have anxiety when they don't tell you ahead of time that you're about ready to hang? But that means you get no bucket of KFC. You get, I can't imagine you get anything extra because if you got something good, you'd know, you'd know. And that would give it away. In this article, they cited a rise in executions with Miyazaki's being the 13th in the first six months of 2008, when only one person was executed in Japan in all of 2005. So I took from the article that, you know, at that point they had a real pro death penalty type of administration. They were starting to execute a, a lot more people, but the, the whole no advance notice thing, I mean, does your family even know ahead of time or do they just find out afterwards that you've been hanged? Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe they find out at the same time, say, come on up. If you can get here within yeah. X, X amount of time, I, I don't know. And they may not even allow people to witness executions in yeah. Japan. Cause I don't think a lot of other countries do other countries that actually have the death penalty. I don't know if they allow spectators like we do. But there's no doubt, Gibbs, that you know there are questions that remain. And I think the debate continues over this nature-nurture thing. Is it one? Is it the other? Is it a combination of both that helps create you know, some of these serial killers? As we're wrapping up this episode, you mentioned it, right? No doubt this guy's family life was rough. His sister was his mother, for one thing. Combine that with the physical issues that I think for him, he considered significant shortcoming. Sure. The bullying, the teasing, all of that. And then you had the loss of his grandfather, who was really the only person that probably had shown him any love whatsoever. It kind of all seems to go into the mix, right? You got to all, you have to throw it all in there. So, you know, he was bullied at school. Then he was bullied at home and it seemed like he retreated into his own little world yeah he wasn't getting a lot of love at home i think he did retreat into his own fantasy world the problem with his fantasy world as opposed to other people's because i think a lot of people might at times retreat into kind of fantasy or, or whatever the problem with his was that it was very dark and it was sadistic it was criminal it was you know, child pornography and violence. And, and ultimately, as we see with many, many serial killers, they can only live in the fantasy for so long. Eventually, these people 
break out from the fantasy and they make it a reality. Yeah. But hell, his fantasy was even illegal. Oh yeah. <laughs> with with the type of child pornography and and things that what 6000 videos? Yeah. He's a monster. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. But I'm still left unable to answer some of these questions, right? You and I continue to examine them. I don't know if we'll ever be able to find definitive answers to some of these questions. What I think we both would agree on is that Satomu Miyazaki was a a POS of the highest order to do what he did to four young girls would have been five, right? If the older sister and dad hadn't done what they did. Absolutely. It's just horrible all the way around. But the other thing that I will say is there are themes that just seem to keep popping up in some of these episodes. You have the bad childhoods. You have the fantasy life that ultimately becomes reality. We seem to see some of that time and time again. But I will state, because I I feel like I always have to do this, I think a lot of people have bad childhoods. I think a lot of people probably retreat to fantasy life get immersed in in different types of fantasy worlds or whatever you want to call them, but they don't go out and do bad things. So again, what is it that causes some people to go further, to want to kill, to want to act out some of their dark fantasies in the real world? Yeah. I think part of that is, is that they acted out. And I think because I hate to use the word successful, but, they're successful at their first attempt. They don't get caught. Well, and not only are they successful to use that word, meaning they don't get caught, they like it. And that's a scary aspect to it. Sure. Obviously, they derive a thrill, uh, uh, something from it because they want to do it again and again and again. Right. But that's it for our episode on Tsutomu Miyazaki. Wow. Just, I mean, absolutely brutal. No way around it. We got some voicemails, though, Gibbs. You want to check those out? Yes, here are those. Hi, my name is Julie from Canada. I actually just recently discovered your podcast and love at first sound. You guys are absolutely amazing. And even though I'm sad that I only discovered you recently, I'm also excited because I see how many episodes you have done and how much binging I can do just to catch up to where you're at now. Um, so yeah, I listen to you guys all the time. I'm just trying to get through your episodes. Amazing. And, uh, a little bit of a crush on both of you and keep up the amazing work. Mwah. Kiss from Canada. I'm blushing. Gibbs. You are. You know, what am I going to do? No, we, we love it. We appreciate it. Now, what I don't know is if she's listening front to back, first to last. Not side to side. Not side to side. Some people will listen to the newest ones and then go back and keep track until they get caught up. Yeah. If that makes sense. If she's not doing it that way, it may be a while before I'll, she hears this. I always tell everybody to get some pen and paper out, mm-hmm. write all the episode numbers down, fold them, throw them into like a hat or a bowl, and just pick out a random number. Is that what you tell everybody? No. <laughs> but it would be. It's a lot of work. I know. Yeah. I do tell some people that. You know what they have is I think an app that just generates random numbers. Oh, it just spins and gives you a number. Yeah. That would, I think you can just put in like one to two eighty nine. Yeah. That would make a lot more sense and be a lot easier, but I know you're old school. I know because you're, that would probably help the environment. You're up there. (laughs) Hi, Mike and Gibby. This is Katie in North Carolina. Um, I just wanted to say, I love the show. Um, to be honest, I, I, I want to apologize. I feel like I've been a little biased over the years. I've mostly exclusively listened to true crime podcasts by female hosts and, um, wasn't really vibing with your show when I first started it, but I've honestly, I've grown to love it. I love how in depth you guys go, your chemistry. Um, you're just very pragmatic and rational, uh, approach to analyzing these cases and still, you know, uh, incorporating your kind of quirky, fun banter and points of view. So I just wanted to say you guys are awesome. I'm really enjoying the podcast. Um, keep up the good work and keep your own time ticking. Have a good day, y'all. 
Well, great. Thanks for the voicemail. Yeah. Glad you gave us another try. Definitely glad you hung in there and, and enjoy it now. Hey, y'all. This is Helen Falk. I'm down here in Christiana, Tennessee. And I just want to let y'all know I love y'all. I love your podcast. I just, by chance, ran across it last March, and I've listened to all the true crime all the time. Now I'm on Unsolved. And I do have a recommendation, Shelly Notek. She was an evil, evil woman. But guys, keep up the great work. I love y'all. Have a good day. And keep your head on the swivel. Bye-bye. You know that song, Evil Woman, just came in my mind. Well, why don't you give us a couple bars? Well, legally, I'm not allowed to. It's not in my contract. Oh, that, that is true. So so we appreciate the voicemail and the suggestion. I mean, I, a lot of people probably don't think we do, but we do write down all the suggestions, and we end up doing episodes that people call in about all the time. You know there's an app to put things like that on, right? Instead of writing it down? Well, I, I, I use the words, write it down, but it's actually typing into an Excel spreadsheet. So oh. trust me, I got the technology. All right. We we didn't have any mailbag this week. So that's it, Gibbs, for another episode of True Crime All the Time. So for Mike and Gibby, stay safe and keep your own time ticking. Is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Ding! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have a crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice. Only on Freebie.